Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, through chapter 24 and verse 3. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I want to gather your children, together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Good evening. I hope you have your Bibles open there to the passage that we just heard in our reading in Matthew chapter 24 is where we will be spending a majority of our time together tonight as we study from that chapter, that context, in just a few moments. Certainly good to see everyone out with us this evening. Thankful for everyone that has been able to make it back to worship God again this Lord's Day. It's certainly good to be able to be together offer encouragement to, to one another and help each other uh, as we strive to always do what is pleasing and right in the sight of God. In a couple weeks ago when we did our question and answer night, I alluded to the this sermon that we were going to be looking at tonight because the question was about 8070 and the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is a pretty... Uh, Expansive question that I felt just it would be hard to sum up in a five or ten minute summary. And so I thought, let's spend an t- evening together and studying this topic because it is something that is important to understand. As we can look at, as you will see tonight, I think there is an important element that we can still gain some encouragement from by looking at this. But the question is also a multifaceted kind of question, or response, rather. And so I think it would be beneficial for us to just consider it from a variety of angles this evening. And this chapter, in Matthew chapter 24, it's the, the text here is actually found in Mark chapter 13 and in Luke chapter 21. Jesus provides a discourse in those three gospel accounts uh, the Gospel of John, there isn't uh, a, a discourse like you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in these three uh, Gospels, you find the same nearly verbatim, the same exact words that are used by Jesus in all three accounts. And so we're just going to, for simplicity's sake, we're just going to primarily look at Matthew chapter 24. But this is a chapter that is comes under a lot of discussion in a lot of different ways. And you might have encountered your friends and your neighbors who believe in premillennial doctrine. That is, they believe that Jesus is going to return at, at His second coming and He's going to reign in Jerusalem on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem, a literal physical kingdom, a nationalistic kingdom that He's going to be reigning there in the city of Jerusalem on the throne of David. And that... Whenever he comes again, there's going to be a rapture, a seven-year tribulation, whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, whatever. There's going to be some kind of rapture at some point along the way. And there, well, they will appeal to Matthew chapter 24. And they will look at the language of Matthew chapter 24 and talking about you'll hear wars and rumors of wars. You'll hear about things that go on and they say, well, the time must be near. The time is drawing close. And so we need to be ready because that's the sign of the end. The end times. That kind of thing that you hear popularized on television or in the news, in media. That's the kind of thing that premillennialists would subscribe to. And they look at Matthew chapter 24 and they say, well, it's all about the second coming of Christ. And the second coming. And then you have... Another group of what I would call partial preterists, and preterists 
that preterism, that is a word that uh, just means that things have already been fulfilled. And there are partial preterists that they believe that most things have been fulfilled, not everything, because there are still promises in the Bible, like Jesus coming again, that have not yet been fulfilled. I would subscribe to the idea that I'm a partial preterist under that kind of understanding. But they appeal to Matthew chapter 24, and they see that there are discussions about the destruction of Jerusalem. There's also discussions about the day of judgment and Christ's second coming. And so there's some divisions that they see, that there's a context here where there are two different subjects being approached. That's Matthew chapter 24, uh, that there are two different subjects that first off Jesus is dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem and then he then goes on to talk about his second coming. I believe that's what Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 24. I think we can show that tonight. Then you have what would be a full preterist, that they believe everything has been fulfilled. And when I say everything, I mean everything. That we don't have to wait, that we're not waiting for Jesus to come again. They believe Jesus has already come again. That He came in AD 70 when the Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. And uh, that would warrant a whole discussion and whole evening, if not more, to talk about the errors of that. But they believe the whole chapter of Matthew chapter 24 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And they would also say that it's talking about Jesus' second coming. But they believe that those were two events that happened at the same time. So I would not subscribe to being a full preterist there. Uh, there's a lot of problems that come from taking that kind of view. But what Matthew chapter 24 is engaging with is this idea that there is a judgment that is coming at the most basic level. I think we could all agree on that. Whether you're a premillennialist, partial preterist, or a full preterist, I think we all understand that Matthew chapter 24 is preparing us for God's judgment in some way. Now, what I think this ought to show us, these are just three views. There's more about Matthew chapter 24 that we could probably find and discuss and looking at the errors involved in some of those uh, interpretations. But one chapter that generates this kind of discussion and... Uh, looking at it from some very, very extreme or different angles, certainly should show us that we need to understand what Jesus is talking about here. So let's just kind of dive right in this evening. The first thing that I think we need to understand is just simply the context of what Jesus is speaking about. And you go back to Matthew chapter 23 to really set this context. Jesus has been pronouncing woes upon the Pharisees for their, uh, their mistaken ideas when it comes to religious uh, practice and their religious zeal. And Jesus, He pronounces these woes, these judgments, these scathing rebukes against the Pharisees. And ultimately, He points the finger at them and He says, you have rejected God. You've rejected God's messengers. You've rejected God's prophets. And ultimately, they are going to reject the Son of God. This is in the very last week of Jesus' life. And they are going to be shouting, crucify Him, crucify Him, just a few days later. In Matthew chapter 23 and in verse uh, 29, if you would begin reading with me there, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Oh no, we would not do that. And Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy because in just a few days, they would be committing a worse crime in putting to death the very Son of God. And so He says in verse 31, So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers that you are going to be surpassing them than their guilt. You're going to at least be equal in their same 
kind of sin. He says in verse 33, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's so important to see right there. That as Jesus is showing them their guilt, and He's saying, you are going to be guilty of all the things that your fathers have done in putting to death the prophets. And because of that, there's going to come judgment. You are going to fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And because of that, all of these things that I'm speaking about will come upon this generation. I believe that's the critical issue that many premillennialists miss when they come to chapter 24. They forget all the context here. And in Matthew chapter 24 and in verse 36, or verse 30, let's back up to verse 34. Where he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So between Matthew chapter 23 and verse 29 and chapter 24 and verse 34, all these things that will take place within that generation, within the generation that Jesus is speaking to, within a 20, 30, 40 year time, time span, where the people that he is speaking with, that they will, some of them will still be alive with what he is about to speak about and warn them about. And you have the pleadings of Jesus found there in verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Just a, earlier, in that same week, in that last week of Jesus' life, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus gave a parable. Perhaps you remember the parable of the landowner and how this. Man, he had a vineyard. And he had these workers, his slaves, his servants that were there. And he sent out a messenger. And they beat him. He sent out another messenger. They killed that one. He sent out another messenger. And they stoned the third one. And in Matthew chapter 21 and in verse 36 and he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to one other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Then in verse 42, Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so Jesus, He shows that He is the one who is the chief Cornerstone. He is going to be the one that is rejected. In verse 44, he speaks about those who fall over that or, or stumble over that stone. In verse 44, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And then you have to appreciate the very end of that chapter. And what Matthew shows us, and he says in verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, 
they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. There was no mistaking what Jesus was speaking about. There in Matthew chapter 21 and in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is saying, you guys are going to be guilty of the same thing. Whenever you killed the prophets, your fathers killed them, you're going to be committing the same kind of sin. It's going to be the same kind of sin, of bloodshed. Only this time you're going to be killing the very Son of God. And what's amazing is that Jesus desired for them to repent. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Jesus wanted them to repent. But they were unwilling. They would not repent. They would not change their ways and their attitude. And so, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 38, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. The house, the temple. And what's interesting there is that Jesus says, it's your house, it's not God's house. It's your house. Because they had boasted in that temple, they took so much pride in that temple, but it was void of God at this point. So their temple was going to be left desolate. Of course, this wasn't the first time that this had happened. It had happened a little more than 600 years before. When Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon came in, they took Jerusalem siege and besieged it, and they captured the city. They destroyed the temple. They burned it. And you can read about that in Second Chronicles and how Moses had prophesied that that would happen in the book of Deuteronomy. And what is amazing is that Jesus is really speaking in very much the same kind of vein as Moses was many years before. He was warning about what would happen. Only Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23 and 24, He says this is going to take place in this generation. This is something that is about to be fulfilled. And so as Jesus leaves the temple complex with His disciples there in Matthew chapter 24 and begin, begin reading with me in verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. And He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. They're marveling at the temple. I can just imagine Jesus with His apostles. They're looking at the city of Jerusalem. And they're looking at Herod's temple and how he had added on to it. And the, that second temple that had been built after they were able to come back into the land and Herod added on to it and did some renovations that were just barely finished at this point. And they're just marveling at this temple. And then, like, this is so impressive of a place. And then they ask Jesus. Because they understand what He has just said. Your house is being left to you desolate. And that He is saying, all these stones are going to be torn down. There's not going to be one stone left standing on top of another. And so as he was sitting, verse 3, on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I really believe they're asking two questions. Think the first one is when will these things happen? When 
is this temple going to be destroyed, Jesus? You're, you're making some, some pretty big claims. When will these things take place? When will this happen? And then the second question, I believe it is sort of a two-part question that they ask. What will be the sign of your coming? That is your uh, parousia. That is the visible coming of Christ and His second coming. He hasn't left yet. So I think that's the only kind of thing they could be asking about. What's the sign of your second coming? Apparently Jesus has been talking to them and teaching them about the end of the age, which is always a reference in the Gospel of Matthew to the judgment day. Earlier in Matthew chapter 13, in Matthew chapter 13, a passage that we are probably familiar with, in verse 39, the explanation of the tares in that parable. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 39, he says, And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so, it, so shall it be at the end of the age, at the judgment day. And so Jesus is, has been teaching His disciples about the day of judgment in which He is going to come again. And those last two clauses, grammatically, they work together in, as we can see. Mark, he collapses both of these things into one, these two questions. He collapses them into two questions, but maintains that it's about one subject in Mark chapter 13 that you could look at just for comparison's sake. But what is absent in Mark's account is the whole idea of them asking anything about Jesus' second coming. But I believe that they are asking really two questions about two different subjects here. Uh, they are asking Jesus, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? When is the temple going to be coming down? And what is going to be the sign that will indicate your coming at the end of the world, the end of the age? And so Jesus then sets out to answer in the rest of chapter 24, these two different subjects. And he talks about the prelude to the destruction of Jerusalem, beginning in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Well, Jesus says there's going to be false teachers, false Christ, people who seek to lead you astray. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be wars between nations and kingdoms. There's going to be natural disasters of famines and earthquakes. The gospel will be proclaimed before Jerusalem is destroyed. Remember, that is the whole context here of asking the question and what Jesus is saying. I don't think it makes any sense whatsoever to assume that Jesus has been talking about Jerusalem and how the city and the people within it are destroying or and killing the prophets and about to kill the Son of God. And he says, this house is about to be left desolate. Not one stone is going to be upon another. And then all of a sudden, Jesus has shifted gears and he's talking about something that still hasn't taken place as of today. <laughs> this isn't talking about 
His second coming at this point. That would make no contextual sense. And it certainly would not have helped His apostles in answering this question. When is this going to take place, Jesus? Oh, wait. I'm going to give you an answer about something that is at least 2,000 years away. Uh-uh. That doesn't make any sense. And so... Jesus is speaking as a prophet here. He is speaking about the things that are going to take place before the end of Jerusalem, before the end of Israel, before the end of the temple. And He is saying that all these things are going to take place and they're going to be leading up to this. It's merely the beginning of birth pains, He says. And then He goes on in verse 15. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out of the house. Are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. What Jesus is saying is you need to be watchful for the abomination of desolation. When you see the abomination of desolation, He says. He says Daniel spoke about that. And in the book of Daniel, he, Daniel uses that phrase. It's just a generic phrase. The abomination of desolation. That he's speaking in Daniel. Daniel in chapter 9, he speaks about the same event here that Jesus is talking about. The destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. Remember in the book of Daniel, he prophesies a little bit about Rome and that empire, that fourth world empire that's going to come about. He also more eminently talks about Antiochus Epiphanes IV and how he was going to come in and how he was going to slaughter a pig on, in the altar of the temple. And he, how he is going to desecrate the temple. And he says that is the abomination of desolation in, in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 31. That this is a descriptive phrase speaking about a foreign enemy invading Jerusalem and desecrating the temple. And in Luke, in Luke chapter 21, in Luke chapter 21, and in verse 20, Luke's account, or in Luke chapter 21 and in verse 20, in Luke's account of these things, he says in verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Luke is very clear that when Jerusalem, Jerusalem, not, not something that, not Jerusalem in 2,000 years, but within that generation, that Jerusalem, that temple, when that is surrounded by armies. It's time to flee. It's time to run. Run for the hills. I think that's another important point to point out to our denominational friends that might believe in premillennialism, that think this is all talking about the second coming. How can you escape the second coming? Of Christ. No one's going to be able to escape that. No one is going to be able to escape the judgment day. But what does Jesus say? Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Jesus says, when you see and hear of armies coming for Jerusalem, it's time to get out of Dodge. It's time to run. 
It's time to get out of there. Don't stick around because you might get caught off guard. It might happen too quickly and you may not be ready. Don't turn around. When you hear that it's time to go, you go. And so the destruction of Jerusalem, the sign that's going to come is that abomination of desolation when you hear that the armies are coming. And then you continue on in Matthew chapter 24 and what is perhaps the most difficult part of the chapter is really found in verses 29 through 31. Where Jesus says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, so after all these things that he's been warning about, the tribulation, the, the coming of the armies, the siege that's going to take place, he says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And that's where many people will say, well, see, preacher, that's obviously talking about the second coming of Christ right there. The sun's darkened. The moon's not going to give light. The stars are going to be falling from the sky. Everything's going to just come to a total collapse. And then if that's not enough, preacher, you need to keep on reading verse 30. And then, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And I believe what... David Garland says he is not a member of the Church of Christ or anything like that, but I believe what he says is absolutely right. He says the paragraph in 24, uh, verses 29 through 31 depicts the end of Jerusalem using the idiom of the Hebrew Scriptures and does not depict the end of the world. The prophets use sensational, figurative language to describe the destruction of cities and Political disasters. We don't have time to look at all of these. But if you're taking notes, I would certainly encourage you to jot all of these passages down. And turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. We will look at that passage. Because one is taking place in what Jesus is doing. He is speaking as the Old Testament prophets do. And He's prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of Israel as He and the apostles knew it. And this was not at all uncommon. This was not at all uncommon for the Jews. Because this is... The Hebrew Scriptures, and that's how the Hebrew Scriptures were written. In Isaiah chapter 13, this is a prophecy from Isaiah predicting the fall of Babylon. Okay, He says uh, at the beginning, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So we don't have to question what this whole text is really about. And he says in verse 10, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Then I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. He says in verse 13, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. I want you to just recognize it's the same language that Jesus is drawing upon there. In Matthew chapter 24, He is describing, as we might say, the lights are going out. Everything is being shut down completely that Israel is going to be punished and they are going to fall. They are going to be destroyed. Just as Edom and other nations fell that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah chapter 34. As Egypt fell 
in the book of Ezekiel. Even the same kind of language is used in the book of Joel, talking about the divine judgment against Judah. That is what Jesus is drawing upon here. That there is divine judgment that is going to take place against the house of Israel and they are going to be left desolate. Nothing is going to be left for them. And admittedly, these are the most difficult verses because at a surface reading, it appears that Jesus is describing His second coming. Especially since He references the Son of Man in the clouds and in the sky and things like that. But the language is cosmic using language of the pictures of earth, sky, stars, sun, moon to describe the judgment and fall of these important figures. It's not literal language, it's figurative language that Jesus is using. And Jesus' point is that God is judging Israel through the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The lights are going to be turned off on Judaism because they have not believed in the Son of God nor in God Himself and His prophets and His messengers that He has been preparing this people to hear. God is judging them. And so Jesus points to the parable of the fig tree as a sign of the time. Just as the tree starts to bud in the spring, he says it's you need to be watching, you need to be waiting. And Jesus states that these events would be fulfilled within the lifespan of the generation he was speaking with. And then at verse 36, we don't have time to go on to this, but in verse 36, Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son of the Father alone. Jesus is obviously shifting gears there. He's transitioning to talk about His second coming. He says here that no one knows. Just think about this from a logical standpoint. He's been, the apostles have asked, what's going to be the sign of all these things taking place? And Jesus has been talking about wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and all these things are going to be happening. But then what does He say about His second coming? No one knows. He can't be talking about the same thing, can He? He has to be talking about something different. He has to be talking about one, in the first place, the destruction of Jerusalem, and then in the second place, His second coming, which follows exactly the questions that His apostles asked at the beginning. But I love the statement here as Jesus is speaking as a prophet of God. He says in verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus says these things are certain. All the events that He's been talking about and predicting and warning about, He says this is going to happen. This is going to happen. But if we are looking for a Bible passage that shows us and tells us all these things took place, we might be very disappointed. Because the Bible doesn't record the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, at least not in a very explicit kind of way. So we have to be somewhat willing to look at the historical accounts and record in existence. And what took place is in, in later on in Israel's history was that Israel began to revolt against the Roman Empire. And if at first glance you might be a little hesitant to think about historical secular accounts. And I think before you're completely dismissive of this, I think what you will see is that these accounts validate and show evidence for what Jesus said as being true. So 
In the fall of AD 66, this is from uh, those books called encyclopedias. You can now find these on the web. <laughs> uh, you don't have to have a huge library. Uh, in Britannica Encyclopedia, in the fall of AD 66, the Jews combined in revolt, expelled the Romans from Jerusalem, and overwhelmed in the pass of Beth Horon, a Roman punitive force under Gallus, the imperial legate in Syria. A revolutionary government was then set up and extended its influence through the whole country. Vespasian was dispatched by the Roman emperor Nero to crush the rebellion. He was joined by Titus, and together the Roman armies entered Galilee, where the historian Josephus headed the Jewish forces. Josephus' army was confronted by that of Vespasian and fled after the fall of the fortress of uh, Jadapada, Josephus gave himself up and the Roman forces swept the country. So in AD 66, the Jews begin this revolt against the Roman Empire. Josephus, he's going to be someone that you've probably heard of. He is a Jewish scholar and historian who he was leading a band of Jews in rebellion against Rome, but whenever he was going to lose the battle, he saw that and he gave himself over to Rome. And what he became was this historian who wrote books about these events to give some information, some historical information about the Jews. And so he becomes a very important figure in, in this uh, discussion. After four years of revolt and nearly six months of Jerusalem being sieged, the temple would be burned by Rome under Titus, the, the Roman soldier and captain of the army. And Josephus, in his own words to describe that siege, he uses some very uh, interesting descriptions. That He says, Now the number of those that were carried captive during this whole war was collected to be 97,000, as was the number of those that perished during the whole siege, 1,100,000, the greater part of whom were indeed of the same nation with the citizens of Jerusalem, but not belonging to the city itself, for they were come up from all the country to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and were on a sudden shut up by an army which at the very first occasioned so great a straightness among them that there came a pestilential destruction upon them, and soon afterwards such a famine as destroyed them more suddenly." So Josephus, he provides us account where it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the springtime. That's when Rome surrounded the city and cut off everything from the city under holding them under siege. And as Eusebius, one of the early church fathers, if you would allow me to use that phrase, how he's usually characterized, he says, but it is necessary to state that this writer records that the multitude of those who were assembled from all Judea at the time of the Passover to the number of three million souls were shut up in Jerusalem as in a prison, to use his own words. And 3,000 people were held under siege in Jerusalem by the armies of Rome in the spring of AD 70. You can imagine, in, if you read in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28 and 29, the descriptions of what takes place when a city is held under siege, it's not pretty. When food supplies and economies are wrecked and shattered, the things that take place are very destructive and very ugly. Brother Kyle Pope in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, he said, during this horrible time, the lack of food led to fighting over every morsel of food with the hungry forced to gnaw on leather straps and sandals for some sustenance. He quotes and he cites Josephus. He said, Some even killed nursing infants and cooked them for
for food. Very disgusting. And Jesus was very clear that the temple would be destroyed. But what I found very interesting in all of this, Jesus, He is emphatic in Matthew chapter 24 that this is going to take place. The temple is going to be destroyed. And you might think that was Rome's plan all along. And yet, it wasn't. In Josephus, he provides an account, and you don't have to read all of this, we won't take the time to read it all, but what he says is that the temple was set on fire completely by accident. It wasn't an intentional burning of the temple. It took place because the Roman soldiers and the Jews were in a conflict, in a little spat, and a fire broke out. And the fire quickly got out of control. Titus actually, the commander of the Roman army, actually said and to try to save the temple. Think about this. The Roman captain, he tried to save the temple. He tried to save it. But what had Jesus said? Not one stone was going to be left unturned. What this ought to show us and impress upon us is that Jesus knew what would happen despite Titus' order to spare the temple. God's will was going to be accomplished. Jesus said, my words will not pass away. This ought to give us some encouragement in what Jesus says. That Jesus, in His words, that they are going to take place. We can believe what He says. Ancient historians also indicate something that is very interesting. That beginning in AD 66, when this Jewish revolt began, what did Christians begin to do? They began to leave Jerusalem. Just like Jesus told them. Eusebius, that early church father that I mentioned, says, but the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by a revelation vouchsafed to approved men there before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Perea called Pella. And when those that believed in Christ had either uh, had come thither from Jerusalem, then as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and His apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. What I find about that is he used, interesting. He uses some uh, colorful language, you might say, elaborate language to describe those who don't believe in Christ. But what I find very, very interesting is the fact that Christians left Jerusalem because of Jesus' warnings. When you see the armies of Rome surrounding the city, get ready, leave. Pray that your flight not be in winter, Jesus said. That Adam Clark in his commentary, he says, citing Eusebius in this quote, he shows that there would be no Christians that were killed. He says, the, the council was remembered and wisely followed by the Christians afterwards. Eusebius and Epiphanius say that at this juncture, after Cestius Gallus had raised the siege and Vespasian was approaching with his army, all who believed in Christ left Jerusalem and fled to Pella and other places beyond the river Jordan. So, and so they all marvelously escaped the general shipwreck of their country. Not one of them perished. What I find to be very interesting after looking at all these quotes and the descriptions of 
the destruction of Jerusalem, the siege, the burning of the temple, and the response that Christians took in fleeing, they heeded what Jesus said. They took Jesus' words very, very seriously. And if Jesus' words about the prediction of Jerusalem's fall and the temple's destruction came to pass. And I find this a very compelling reason for me to believe everything that Jesus says. Because in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6, what we see is Jesus, as He was teaching His apostles and those who would follow and listen to Him, some of them grew disappointed with Jesus. He was not living up to their expectations. And Jesus, many of them left. And then Jesus gives an opportunity for Peter to leave. He asks him, do you also want to go? But Peter, in a great testimony of faith, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Jesus has the words of eternal life. There's no other source that we can turn to that would give us hope of life everlasting. If you are here tonight and you are not in a right relationship with God, we do not want you to hesitate and delay any longer. Make your life right with the Lord. Come to Him. If you've never become a Christian, we want you to become a child of God. And if you have become a Christian, but you've not been living faithfully, trust in Jesus' words of tender mercy and grace. He wants you to come. He invites you to come. He implores you. He is ready to receive you. If we can help you in some way tonight, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?